Behold, a gateway to your own past, if you wish. I think it's important to note that uh, Woodrow Wilson, as far as we can tell, uh, won uh, the state of New Hampshire by a total of maybe 36 votes. Um, and there are a surprisingly large number of states that are separated by, you know, one or two tenths of a percentage. But right now, I think we'll be waiting for California to come in, and that's going to decide the outcome of the election. 36 votes, another good reminder that every vote matters. Absolutely, absolutely true. History is strange, it's alien, and it won't give us what we would like to have. It's hour three of a Tuesday morning on Bill Mick Live, and Dave Bowman joining us from Silverdale, Washington, as Gatto's Tire and Auto Service brings you this third hour of our day. Third hour of a Tuesday devoted to history, and Dave does history on Bill Mick Live. Dave, thanks again for giving us uh, all three hours today. I enjoy having you around, man. It's fun. I, I have no real life, so getting up, and plus with the time change, it was a lot easier to get up today. <laughs> I guess it was, huh? That's not bad. Well, we were talking elections as we closed the last hour, potential for 2024, what's going on today around the country and here in our municipal and special district elections. Polls have been open a little over an hour this morning, and they'll be open till 7 o'clock tonight. So if you have one of those elections in your region, get out there and vote, would you? Make a difference in your community. Otherwise, sit down and shut up because you didn't care enough to do something about it. Anyway. Where are we going in this election uh, discussion, Dave? Funny that you say that. Sit down and shut up. This this whole idea of my vote doesn't matter. Everybody hates me, so it's, nobody listens to me. Nothing ever changes. So I'm just going to throw up my hands and quit. It seems to be. I've a, heard it from people my entire life. I was going to say it seems to be a repetitive issue, doesn't it? Yeah. But it was this day in 1916 that Americans went to the polls. And they had a choice between the incumbent president, Woodrow Wilson, and Mm -hmm. the Republican challenger, a fellow by the name of Charles Evans Hughes, that you may or may not have ever heard of because... I would say Wilson won this because we never heard of Mr. Hughes. Hughes, Right. You never heard of President Hughes. Yeah. Which is true. He does. But it's one of those cases that I think is worthy of looking at because what we're going to discover is that, well... As much as some people who listen to the show and call that I won't name, but it rhymes with Brody, might Uh be surprised to discover that every vote does count. And sometimes there are cases where things are decided by, you know, literally one to 3,000 people. And if those people all sit out, well, things change. By 1916, World War I was the issue. You got to understand that. World War One was raging, it was devastating, and it and it's not even like today, Bill, where you know half of my news today is live video feed from Gaza. In World War One, the only thing you had was newspapers. You didn't, you didn't even have radio, mm-hmm. so the only thing you got was the newspaper reports. But it was pretty obvious that things were a problem. You'd had the Lusitania incident, you had unrestricted submarine warfare, and you had this issue down on the border. Bill, the border, the southern border of the United States was wide open. And there were people who were mad about the fact that the border was wide open in 1916. You're really dashing my hopes that we're going to be able to do anything about that situation. You know that, right? Well, there were people who wanted to do something about it. And there were people who thought, well, it's not really all that big of a problem. But either way you look at this, the United States was still neutral in 1916 as the election process unfolded, but there was great, immense pressure on both sides. 
We talk it more as we continue on Bill Mick Live in just a moment on WMMB. Dave, uh, we're, we've got very similar issues to today, apparently, in what was going on in 1916. The more things change, the more they stay the same, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mexico is in the throes of the Mexican Revolution. And as a part of that, there are Mexican elements that keep invading the United States. And I don't mean with illegal immigrants. I mean physically invading the United States. And eventually we're going to send John Pershing, General John Pershing, down there to try to chase down Pancho Villa. It's not going to work, but we're going to try it anyway. And still no solution to this whole thing. The war is raging on, and this literally is going to become the issue in the 1916 campaign, because there are disparate views about what we should be doing. Now, today we look at World War I and we go, well, we were the arsenal of democracy, we were, you know, Lafayette, we are here, all that stuff, you know, upholding democracy and those sorts of things. But in 1916, that was not quite so clear. In fact, it really isn't clear at this point who actually are the good guys in World War I. I know that sounds strange to our ears, but it really wasn't an issue like you would have in World War II, where you have this purely evil nation, Nazi Germany. That wasn't the case. And keep in mind that probably somewhere around 40% of the country, depending on which part of the country you're in at that point, is either directly immigrated from or descendant from immigrants from what would be known as the Central Powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary. In other words, a significant part of the country has emotional ties to what we now consider the enemy, the bad guys, the, the Huns. So as long as the United States is neutral, they're kind of calmed down. But keep in mind, the United States is moving more and more towards not being so neutral. The the Wilson administration is making a lot of money for Americans. We are selling munitions hand over foot to England and France, and we're loaning them money to buy our stuff. So Woodward Wilson is the first international arms dealer. Well, he's not the first, but he's certainly (laughs) one of the most successful at it. He capitalized on it. Yeah. Right. There are people who will argue to this day, you can find them out there, that the only reason that the United States ultimately enters the World War I is because we were afraid the British and French were going to lose and we wouldn't get paid if we didn't. So it, war is great business, at least uh, for us. Wilson's looking at the, at the race and he's thinking to himself, okay, here are some of the things I can run on. Um, We've got the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, which, again, today we look at, particularly in conservative circles, as a very negative thing. But in 1913, even Republicans favored this. Same with the Federal Trade Commission Act. You know, we were talking in the first hour about the AI and the the trading and stuff like that. Yeah. An antitrust act that, that got through. He lowered tariffs that had been in place since the Civil War. He loaned, he, he came up with this farm loan system to loan farmers money so that they wouldn't lose their farms. And of course, the Federal Revenue Act, which prior to the 16th Amendment, prior to income taxes, they had to fund the government somehow. So all of these things were things that he felt like, hey, we accomplished, and all of them meant nothing to anybody that was voting. 
The only thing anybody really cared about was, what are we going to do about this war? Are we going to get involved, or are we going to stay out? And Wilson's moral diplomacy led to his, literally his campaign slogan in 1916, has nothing to do with the economy, nothing to do with uh, any of the domestic policies that he's put into place. None of that matters. The entirety of his campaign is, quote, he kept us out of the war, unquote. Narrator, he will not keep us out of the war. <laughs> his views on neutrality are pretty, pretty strict, although he clearly leans into the allies, the French and the British, because he's selling them goods. And he keeps yelling at the Germans about unrestricted warfare and, you know, things like that. He certainly keeps painting the Germans as the bad guys. Even though, again, in, 19 in, in this time frame, Dave, was Germany an ally of sorts with us? No, not no, at all. No, they really hadn't been. Um, but neither were they our opponents. We weren't competing with Germany for anything. Mm -hmm. And again, upwards of 40 percent of our country was immigrated Im immigrants, sorry, from that area. So a significant part of our country is culturally, at least you know, German in, in descent and, and those sorts of things, and certainly in emotions. And keeping us out of the war is a big part of, of Wilson's campaign, and ultimately his success, particularly in the Midwest, is this idea that he kept us out of the war, we're not going over there and having to kill, you know, our relatives, and we like that. On the GOP side, they have nominated Charles Evans Hughes, who again, most of you have never heard of, but... He had been an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. He literally calls up the Republican Party and says, hey, if you want to nominate me, I'll step down from the bench. And they said, okay, that's a great idea. He steps down from the bench, he gets the nomination, and his views on everything, the Federal Reserve, the Federal Trade Commission, the antitrust, the lower tax tariffs, the, the increased taxes under the all of his views on everything are exactly the same as Wilson's, with one exception. He thinks we should be, quote, more prepared for war. Wilson kept us out of war. Hughes wants us to be ready for war. And that is what people are going to vote on this day in 1916. So with all those things going apparently so well, it, Wilson didn't point to the good things that were going on. He was just talking about the war. That's it. That moral diplomacy kept us out of the war we'll see well apparently it worked until it didn't we'll talk about that as we continue dave does history on bill mclive we continue in moments on wmmb
weekly dive into history. Dave Bowman joins us on Bill Nick Live. Gatto's Tire and Auto Service bringing you the hour. And from the uh, start of Glenn Beck through the end of Sean Hannity, you get a chance each hour today to win that $1,000. It's our nationwide inflation compensation contest. Here are the keyword. Enter it on the website at WMMBAM.com. Headline at BillMick.com today is AI, courts, and politics. Well, we're into the politics part, and interesting how similar things were in 1916 to where we are today. Dave, we're looking at uh, Woodrow Wilson's, spoiler alert, re-election. <laughs> and uh, the issues, like you were saying, very similar. And really, these candidates more similar than people thought. Well, and I think that's something we talk about now. I mean, what was the difference between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney? Functionally, what was the difference? And and this is one of the complaints I think people have is it doesn't matter who's in office. They're going to do the same thing. And this is this is clearly part of the issue in 1916 because literally the only difference between the two candidates, Charles Evan Hughes is what is known as a progressive Republican, which means that He's in favor of government intervention, government control of things. The only difference is that he leans a little bit more pro-business than Woodrow Wilson does. Other than that, there's virtually no detectable difference between the two. It really wouldn't matter. You could flip a coin, and things probably turn out exactly the same as they do anyway. The only real difference is Wilson is, you know, as he says in his campaign, he kept us out of war. Whereas Hughes, his attitude is, we at least need to be ready for the war. We need to be, you know, drafting people. We need to be building up our army, which is seen negatively by, again, a significant portion of the country, which is immigrants and immigrant descendants, who see that as being very bellicose and very anti-German. And they don't like that. And this is, this is, really the issue in all of this and all of the polls show this all the way through it's a it's a dead heat race in fact it is such a dead heat race that wilson is surprisingly convinced that he's going to lose he is so sure that he's going to lose that he actually makes a plan bill now now imagine this amongst politicians today he is so sure that he's probably going to lose the election, maybe, that he looks at the Constitution and says, okay, what can I do to make sure that the best interests of the country are met? And the best interest of the country, if we elect Charles Evan Hughes president, is we need to be getting ready for war. Right? I mean, that's, that's what he keeps saying. So mm -hmm. if the people vote for him, that must mean that that's what the people want to have happen. The problem is that in 1916, the lame duck presidency and Congress still are in office until March, not January like they are today after the 20th Amendment, meaning that there's almost six months of prep time that could be lost if Wilson stays in office until the term actually ends, right? Yeah. So he comes up with a plan, a plan that is so unthinkable today that it almost seems like when people hear it, they go, there's no way that anybody would actually do that. But 
Wilson, thinking to himself what's best for the country, actually does. So this unthinkable thing that Wilson is doing, Dave, what's he going to do? He's going to put the country first. The issues of the country first. Uh-huh. That's so weird to us today. Yeah, it is, things, isn't it? Things are a little different in 1916. Again, we've, we've, we've changed some things. In 1916, the order of succession, if the president dies or leaves office, Again, it's not absolutely clear that the vice president takes office, but it's assumed. That's become tradition. We've talked about that. But the number two guy is not the Speaker of the House. It's the Secretary of State. The thinking being that he's been approved by the Senate, so we like him. I am in charge here now. Yes, exactly. (laughs) A little bit of Al Haig going on. I like it. His, His name is Robert Lansing, and he's called into Wilson's office a couple of weeks before the election. And he is told, here's the plan, if I lose the election. The plan is that if I lose, the next day, you resign as Secretary of State. Period. And I will appoint as Secretary of State, Charles Evans Hughes, the President-elect of the United States. And then as soon as the Senate approves him as Secretary of State, myself and the Vice President will resign thus making Robert Evan Hughes, or Charles Evans Hughes the acting president of the United States as well as the president-elect so that he can get on with the business of getting ready for war. That sounds downright selfless, doesn't it? It's not what we normally associate with politicians, or Wilson in particular. And, yeah. a, and the only source we have of this is Robert Lansing himself, the guy that was told he would resign. And he didn't reveal this until decades later. So is it possible that it didn't really happen that way? It's possible, but why would he make that up? What, you know? And, of course, as things are going to turn out, it becomes an unnecessary plan anyway, except that Wilson is not in the best of health, and he's not telling people this. So things are going strangely as you get into the election. But it is interesting to note that at least if this story is true, and I believe that it is, we at least had one president in the 20th century who was thinking in terms of what is best for the country, not what's best for me. Now, you could argue that maybe it wasn't best for the country to go into World War I, but that's a different argument altogether. He would have assumed that the people elected this guy, states elected this guy. Digitizing your feed, so we're losing bits and pieces here. You would have assumed that, so off we would go. And it it's one of those things that, you know, it kind of raises Wilson up a little bit, but then, you know, he turns out to be Woodrow Wilson still. When Election Day comes, turnout is heavy. Heavier than it's ever been in the history of the country to that point. In fact, massive, I guess, would be the would be the way to describe it. But it is razor, razor close. I mean, it is one of the closest elections in the history of our country. If you look at the Electoral College, it doesn't look like it. But this is literally going to come down to, by the time Hughes goes to bed on Tuesday night, the election night, he is absolutely convinced that he's won. There's only one state still outstanding. It's California, and he thinks he's got that one. So he goes to bed thinking, I'm the next president of the United States. Lansing's going to resign, and everything's going to be... You know what it is. He was in on the Lansing plan? No. He was in on... He had no idea about that. But 
but that's what's gonna that's what's gonna happen. So mm-hmm. this is how close this election is, Bill. It comes down to California. California is going to decide who wins the nineteen sixteen election. And Hughes thinks he's already got it won, so he goes to bed. And he thinks he's the president of the United States starting in a couple of days because he doesn't know about the plan yet, but certainly by March. And this, of course, means war. And this was all war driven by this massive turnout? Pretty much, yeah. In the Midwest, it's against the war. Everywhere else, it's possibly for the war, depending on how you want to look at it, because that's really the only difference between them. Very good. We continue with Dave Does History when we uh, wrap up Bill McLeod. We'll let you in on this last segment at 321-768-1240. And remember, anything you miss, pick it up in the podcast section at BillMick.com and on the Bill Mick Live iHeartRadio channel. for today's train of thought at 321-768-1240. Gatto's Tire and Auto Service bringing you this hour. Bill Mick live as we wrap up today's edition of Dave Does History. Dave Bowman with us this morning. And we're talking about the 1916 election, which was um, close going into it, Dave. Did it end up that way when the election was done? So if you look at close elections in the history of this country, 1960, now we're just looking at the popular vote here. 1960, Kennedy versus Nixon, 120,000 votes make the difference. In 1880, it's 7,368. In 2000, of course, which was also this day, about a half a million votes make the difference between Gore and Bush. 1876, quarter million. 1824, 38 million, 800,000. But but in, in 1916, the difference is 578,140 votes. It, it's, it's razor thin. In North Dakota, the margin is 1,735 votes. In New Mexico, 2,375 votes. In Missouri, 28,000 votes. In New Hampshire, the difference is 56 votes. That's how close this race is. But it all comes down to California. Charles Evans Hughes has gone to bed. He thinks he's the president of the United States. And in California, the margin goes to Wilson by less than 3,000 votes. Wow. Now, you think in California there were 3,000 voters who would have preferred Hughes. Remember, California, very Republican state back then, who said to themselves, eh, it just doesn't matter. Nothing ever changes. Do you think that ever happens? So California, by th- less than 3,000 votes, or right around 3,000 votes, goes to Wilson, who wins the race. The next morning, one of the reporters calls up the Hughes residence to say, what do you think about the fact that you lost? The man who answers the phone tells the reporter, quote, 
the president is still asleep, unquote. <laughs> to which the reporter, in one of the most famous lines in American political history, says, quote, tell him he's not the president, unquote. And that's how Woodrow Wilson ends up winning re-election on the campaign promise of he kept us out of the war. Now, of course, the tragedy in all of this is that he doesn't keep us out of the war. But I think the lesson for us today is 3,000 votes. 3, 000, that's it. 3,000 votes. Out of the entire nation, yeah. Changed who was going to be president in 1960. Now, would it have had that big of an impact on world events post that? I don't know that it would have. But it was that close. And it tells you that people who say, quote, we've never been more divided, unquote, don't know anything about American history. Why are we surprised, I guess? So the answer to this is your vote does count. Get out and vote today. And we're back in 60 seconds on Bill McLive. 321-768-1240 if you want to talk this with Dave this morning. Uh, so, Dave, Wilson is surprisingly the president. Um, and he said, we kept you out of the war, but that's not going to end up being what happened. What what changed for Wilson that we end up going into World War One? You know, it's an interesting, you remember that border crisis that we had going on down on the Mexican border? The Germans will send a telegram to Mexico in January of 1917 that says, Hey, if you'll come into the war on our side, we'll give you California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas back after we win. Now, the British break the telegram. They thought it was going to come over here and win? Well, again, it was a different world, Bill. I mean, we saw things were seen differently. The British break this telegram, they send it to us. And in one of the more remarkable episodes of history, we challenged the Germans. We said, did you really send this? And unlike the AI back in the first hour, the Germans say, yeah, we did. <laughs> and two months later, we declare war on Germany. Wow. It's a tragedy, but it happened. How did um, how'd the country respond? To the election of Wilson or to the... Well both. Let's go with the election first. You know, again, the nation was pretty divided, but what we were divided on is whether we should get ready for war or stay out of the war. And so all of that became a moot point when Germany tried to co-op Mexico into invading us and retaking California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. That sort of galvanized the anti-German feeling in the war. There's still a significantly significant anti-war element in the in the upper midwest which is heavily german but by the time you get to april of 1917 when wilson makes his speech in congress it's it's a done deal the nation is behind it and that's going to lead to some other things that are not so great in my opinion but it does get the united states directly involved in the war interesting three two one seven six eight twelve forty keith is in palm bay hey keith you're on bill mclive Hey guys, um, you know, your discussions are great and it always pops a memory in my head and I can't remember the exact source, but I think it came out of humanities discussion, late nineties, uh, in college. Um, 
uh, it was disgusting. World War One was one of the stupidest wars ever started. And at the time, Europe, except for France and Russia, were led by dramatic tribe monarchies that were blue blood, interbred, West by God, Virginia cousins, all of them. Hey. The Tsar, the, the, the Kaiser, and uh, King Albert. And it even showed pictures. They all looked like brothers. And it was a dispute in the royal family. And England even went as far as the change in their house name from Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, the house of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, to the house of Windsor. That it was an inner dispute between the royalty. And then one of the cousins or something got shot in Austria, assassinated. And then it all went to hell. Interesting. Dave, is that how you perceive all this to have gone Well, on? to a degree. And keep in mind, Russia is not exempt from that. Tsar Nicholas and King George V could change clothes, and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference unless they talked, because one speaks Russian, one speaks English. They look that much alike. Um, yes, they are a lot of cousins, a lot of intermarrying, a lot of mixing and that kind of stuff, with the exception of the French Republic. The, the war, I would agree, it's one of the dumbest wars ever. But its causes are much more deep than we, we like to talk about because we don't know about some of the past history. We don't know about the Franco-Prussian Wars of the, uh, the late 19th century. And we don't understand the, the politics of, of, of that era. Um, one of the reasons that I am a historian is because of my sophomore year. I had a history teacher who really got me interested in things. And one of the things he used to say, and I have this written down everywhere I take notes, the three causes of World War One. This is from 1978 when I was in high school. You ready? Militarism, imperialism, and nationalism. And you can take all the causes of World War One and you can melt them into that. And reality is you could take pretty much any war and melt them into those three things. Militarism, nationalism, and imperialism. You had nations that were trying to conquer the world, trying to gain colonies to gain money and prestige. You had these military arms races that were insane. The naval arms race was just crazy. Plus, it was expensive. And you had this nationalistic belief, which is what caused Austria-Hungary to react to the Serbian assassination of, of Franz Ferdinand with this insane demand that you basically surrender to us that Serbia couldn't meet. So Austria invades Serbia. That's what kicks the whole thing off. Germany is allied with Austria-Hungary because their houses are intermingled. England is allied with, with Russia, which is allied with, with Serbia, which is allied with France. And eventually you have this whole thing because, you know, this, this nationalist down in Serbia shot Franz Ferdinand, who everybody in Austria-Hungary hated anyway. It wasn't a big loss to them. They didn't see it as this tragic loss of this future leader. They saw it as getting rid of a guy that nobody really liked anyway. But national honor had been insulted, so they had to respond, and they, they responded by invading Serbia and starting World War One, which killed millions of people. Line two, you're up next on Bill McLive. Good morning. This is William from Melbourne. Yeah, William, go ahead. Question for Dave. Is America prepared for war, or... Or should we be prepared for war? And I'll hang up and get his answer. Thank you, William. Appreciate it, Dave. Hmm, that's a good question. Are we prepared for war? I, 
if you'd asked me that 20 years ago, I would have said, sure, but I don't know. I, I've been out of the military so long that I don't know really what they do, even though I live two miles from and the base. And how many stories have we heard of we've depleted our munitions, sending them to um, uh, Ukraine? Ukraine. So far, are we so ready long. to do anything? Yeah, and, and we're sending things to Israel now. So, and, and the answer is, I don't know. Should we be getting ready for war? Well, shouldn't we always be ready? Not ready to go start one, but ready to fight one if we have to. That's Washington's maxim. The best way to achieve peace is to be ready for war. Exactly. Line one, you're up on Bill McLive. Good morning. Hey, Bill. This is Steve. This is Bill and Dave. This is Steve from Melbourne. Yeah, Steve, go Hi. ahead. I think the point is, it proves that elections don't matter. Give me the points in your argument. What do you mean? What do, what do I mean? Well, if you would have got the other guy, would we have gone to war? Yes. All right. Let me get Dave's response. Thank you, Steve. Go ahead, Dave. Well, if the presumption is that the reason we went to war is to protect our investment, then sure. But one of them wanted to actually prepare for that. The other just wanted to eventually do it. Would it be better to go in prepared or unprepared? Line three, you're up next. Good morning. Yeah, this is Dan from Melbourne Beach. Yeah, Dan, go ahead. Make it quick. Yeah, but, um, I think a discussion of World War One with uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, should be uh, uh, including uh, Edward Mandel House. He was a chief advisor to uh, President Wilson during that period of time. Uh, and... Uh, he wrote a good book, uh, Phil Drew. So, uh, uh, something that, uh, I think, uh, Dave ought to consider. And I do appreciate Dave being on the show. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Dan. Good to have you along, Dave. We are down to uh, about 45 seconds here. Yeah. That's what I tell people all the time. CBE can't be everywhere. Can't talk about everything. This is a popular radio show. So, you know, we, if we were going to, if I had six well, hours to do the lecture, hope. sure, but. <laughs> Yes, House is an yeah, important get writer. To where we can. Speaking of, what are we going to talk about next week? You know, Dave I'm, does I'm history? looking at next week, uh, Joseph McCarthy, who is a controversial figure in American history. Who was more right than the country wants to admit? Didn't want to admit it then, huh? Or was he? We can talk about that. I don't know. You look at Congress now. We could use him today, maybe. Anyway, thank you, Dave. It's always fun. Gatto's Tire and Auto Service made the hour possible. Wide open Wednesday tomorrow. Dave Bowman, we'll talk between now and then. I look forward to it. His podcast at BillMick.com. There's a link there.